You're listening to Nearly Numinous, a podcast all about the religious side of life. We hope to provide our listeners insight into the lived experiences of everyday people as it pertains to any form of religion or spirituality. This includes embracing scholarly understandings of religion and sociology, but it also includes casual conversations and understanding real lived experiences. This podcast is hosted by myself, Steph, Jacqueline, and Rachel, and we hope you join us every Monday for new episodes. talking all about the idea of the American dream. We'll dive into the roots of it by looking at the Protestant ethic and Calvinism and how those theologies help shape contemporary American capitalist ideologies. But before we begin, we'd like to make a bit of a disclaimer, noting that we're well aware that we're only going to discuss a very brief aspect of capitalism and its religious roots. We recognize that this issue is far more complex than we are able to discuss within the bounds of this one episode. We acknowledge that racism, slavery, and the exploitation of workers is a core aspect of capitalism, and we only very briefly touch upon that throughout this episode, and we don't explore it to its fullest extent. If you are an expert on the subject and would like to be a guest on our podcast, please reach out to nearlynuminous at gmail.com. We would really love to have you. American dream is the belief that anyone with hard work can achieve any amount of success and prosperity, primarily from an economic standpoint. This belief is on the basis that everyone is equal and provided the same opportunities and it leaves nothing to luck or chance. This is ultimately founded on the basis of capitalism. This idea is that economic growth is success. It also leaves the responsibility of the country's economic growth and prosperity in the hands of private individuals rather than under the control of the government. On the surface, it doesn't seem to make sense that religion is so intertwined with the idea of economics and capitalism. However, as we'll see throughout our discussion, the very idea of capitalism is often linked to the development of the Protestant ethic. And before we dive into what the Protestant ethic is and Max Weber's work outlining the link between theology and capitalism, we feel it's important to give you more information about Protestantism itself. On October 31st, 1517, so just over 500 years ago, German monk Martin Luther nailed his treatise, the 95 Theses, on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This document was a list of 95 problems that Luther saw in the practices of the Catholic Church, ones which he hoped would be rectified. While nailing something to the door of a church may seem a little brash to us now, at the time it was it was a common way to begin dialogue in a community, as community members would stop by to read the letters as they were going about their daily tasks in the community, maybe doing their errands, and they would uh, begin to discuss what the letters said with their neighbors. In addition to nailing it to the church door, Luther also sent it with a letter to his bishop. So another important note is that while this is a monumental moment in the beginnings of what is now called Protestantism, Luther in this moment still saw himself as a Catholic. Some scholars think that Luther thought the Pope 
Pope Leo X was not fully aware of the negative effects of some of the practices Luther saw as problematic and believed that the Pope would bring an end to them um, when they were brought to his attention. Perhaps this was a bit naive. Um, we've all been there where we want <laughs> where we want to continue to see the best in the people we admire so badly that we ignore some pretty clear red flags. I've never done that. <laughs> Luther's main concern was about indulgences. John Tetzel, who is a preacher of indulgences, said, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul into heaven springs. In Catholic theology, most souls went to a holding place called purgatory after death. In this in-between place, the soul would be purified for a period of time before it could go to heaven. This period of time can be sped up for both you or your deceased loved ones by obtaining indulgences. So indulgences were documents given by the church to individuals for performing special tasks, such as maybe praying a special prayer, going on a pilgrimage, going to a certain certain location that was especially holy, donating to a charity or some other virtuous task. In a way, it worked a lot like how our academic or work award systems work. Um, the sort of reward theology or, or worldview is still quite common today. To this day, some Christians, such as those who adhere to what is called the prosperity gospel, will, do, will specifically do good works with a specific purpose of gaining a future reward, most often health, wealth, or a ticket to heaven. This pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps prosperity theology has been so deeply infused in the white Protestant culture that those who are culturally Christian, so those whose families were Christian but they themselves may not practice Christianity, still tend to have an internalized belief that good things happen to good people. This, of course, is a problematic point of view when you look at histories of oppression, as well as the exploitative and ableist nature of capitalistic society. But more on that later. But back to indulgences. So the practice of indulgences were actually quite common in the Middle Ages. So I guess when the Pope wanted to renovate his basilica in Rome, indulgences made a lot of sense as a way to, to finance that. To, to fund this campaign, traveling preachers like Tetzel go around from town to town, scaring people with threats of hell and brimstone in hopes that they would buy these indulgences. These preachers, of course, would receive a cut of the money. Looking at the poor villagers in, the, in his parish, Luther became concerned about the indulgence economy. To paraphrase what he wrote in Thesis 86, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest man, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? So, long story short, the Pope was happy with how things were and wasn't interested in changing. When Luther wouldn't renounce his treatise, Luther's life was threatened, but luckily he had allies in the German nobility who wanted some freedom from the control of the Holy Roman Empire. With their help, he went into hiding for a while. While hiding out, he translated the Latin Bible in German, which was forbidden, and he also further developed his main theologies, the most important of which uh, for this episode at least, being sola scriptura, sola fide, and sola gratia, which means by scripture alone, by faith alone, and by grace alone. In these theologies, Luther rejects the tradition of the Catholic Church and the tradition of indulgences, which is not found in the Bible. Instead, he emphasizes his belief of the importance of God's grace in the soul's quest for salvation, 
So he, I, he emphasizes especially the idea of faith over works, that God's grace was given due to faith rather than by one's good works. This is a drastic change from the point system that the indulgence system suggested. Luther also made Christianity more accessible to everyday people. As noted previously, Luther translated the Bible into German, as most people did not know Latin and so could not read the Bible in Latin or understand Latin liturgy. He also brought the idea of vocation to the common folk. Not everybody could or wanted to be priests or monks or nuns. Luther preached the idea that one could follow God's will in their everyday work, that a butcher or farmer or mother could glorify God in their everyday work and were not less important to God than a church official. To this day, a central idea of Protestantism is that each person has a worldly calling and a vocation, and this idea continues to infuse religious ideals and virtues into everyday activities. Now, all of this makes Luther sound like a saint, but before you go put Luther on a pedestal, know this. Luther was not perfect. Honestly, from reading his theology, I can firmly say that I personally would not like him as a person if we met. Following his actions of reform, um, there were peasants who were seeking to further uh, this reformation um, in the form of social reform um, to liberate themselves from the social inequality ingrained in German society. And Luther, who was buddies with the nobility, was not really interested in this. Um, In his letter, which was titled, Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants, he writes, Let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab, secretly or openly, remembering that nothing can be more poisonous, hurtful, or devilish than a rebel. It is just as when one must kill a mad dog. If you do not strike him, he will strike you and a whole land with you. It's a bit hypocritical of him. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very anti anybody who says it's okay to strike a dog. Like, come on. Yeah. What the hell? (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it unfortunately gets worse. So, um, so Luther, I guess, because he was really anti catholic um which would you know like make sense because they threatened his life like they tried to assassinate him uh he was really hopeful um that he would get converts from the jewish people um that were living around him and um they weren't really into that for whatever reason so he wrote this letter the jews and their lies um which is essentially just a temper tantrum because he couldn't convince them to convert to christianity uh, i will not repeat these words um, but they were anti-semitic and uh, would later be used by various christian churches in nazi germany to justify their complicit actions in the nazi regime and the nazi um, stance of anti-semitism so we all say stupid things when we're angry. I personally have not gone that far when I'm angry. No, nope. yeah, <laughs> me neither. And um, yeah, so in the case of Luther, due to his leadership position and significance in church history, um, these angry words have unfortunately had a huge negative impact on the world. Um, so to me, it shows the importance of being careful with our words um, all the time, but especially when we're angry and prevents or and presents to me a strong argument that white men of privilege in prominent leadership positions with anger issues, a lack of self-awareness, and a lack of understanding of system, systems of oppression should be forced to take a time out when they have a childish temper tantrum. 
forced to, to, you know, put down their quill or step away from Twitter. That's a big retweet from over here. Big retweet, yeah. the way for other theologians to come and kind of create their own sub-branches of this uh, Protestantism. And one of the areas that we're going to focus quite a bit on today is Calvinism. So Calvinism is based off the theology of John Calvin, who is quite an important figure in what's considered the second generation of Protestant reformers. Uh, Many people even argue that he's as important, if not more, than Luther himself. Most of the things that he talked about came out of his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, which uh, he wrote in 1536. It gave commentary on the Bible and his theology surrounding it, uh, and it included most of what ended up becoming the basis of Calvinism. So John Calvin was inspired primarily by the Renaissance humanism movement, which was a philosophy of what the movements at the time used uh, in order to radically shift the Christian church back to what they say were a more authentic Christianity. And much of this prioritized studying the Bible in its original languages and getting to the core of the Bible itself. So one of the main themes that came out of Calvinism was the idea of predestination. So Luther already introduced the idea of people being saved through faith alone, uh, and predestination is kind of a step further. So the idea of predestination uh, within certain Christian theologies is the idea that all events have been willed by God, including who is going to heaven or not. It's the classic fate versus free will argument to the absolute extreme. So how does Calvinism specifically play into the American dream? Well, we can look to Max Weber's work titled The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. So because Calvinists believed in predestination, uh, there's a belief that anything you do doesn't really affect if you get into heaven or not, rather your success and the hard work that you did on earth was rather just a sign that God favored you and that you were likely already saved. The Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of Capitalism was published in 1904 and was written by Max Weber, who was a German sociologist and economist. Weber was influenced by Marx's writings, but never claimed to be a Marxist, especially since he criticizes some Marxist theories throughout the Protestant ethic. But the main argument throughout the book is that the ethics of Protestantism, specifically the theology of Calvinists, inspired and created the capitalist spirit. This spirit can be seen across Europe, but also in Canada, and as we're talking about specifically today, the U.S., The idea surrounds the theory that pursuing profit is its own virtue with no other necessary end goal. 
Weber ultimately sees the use of the Protestant ethic as being linked with a very individualistic and selfish lifestyle, where each individual is only concerned with their own salvation. So he says, this doctrine of predestination, with all the pathos of its inhumanity, had one principal consequence for the mood of a generation, which yielded to its magnificent logic. It engendered for each individual a feeling of tremendous inner loneliness. This is all in contrast, according to Weber, to the Catholic ethic, which promotes only achieving enough success for survival. Anything else is considered bad and at the expense of others. Whereas from the Calvinist view, achieving the most is seen as good because success is considered a sign that you're more favored by God. So Calvinism kind of got its start more in Europe, uh, but once we move into the U.S., we saw a lot of the ideas of the Puritan theology stem from Calvinist beliefs, especially when it comes to hard work and predestination. So one of the prominent theologists, Richard Baxter, uh, promoted that idleness and kind of, you know, wasting time was the sin rather than wealth itself. So this means that no matter how wealthy you are, you must continue to work. The sin is to stop to indulge in the wealth rather than achieving the wealth. So Weber summarizes this very well by saying that the unwillingness to work is a symptom of the absence of the state of grace. Weber believed that this branch of Puritan ideals helped shape what we know as the middle class, especially since the idea of the middle class breaks down barriers between the rich nobility and the poor peasantry, as the wealthy would keep working rather than indulge as the nobility of feudal states would often do. So I've kind of talked about the idea of the middle class here, but I'd be interested to chat a bit more about our view on the middle class, because I think that's so entrenched in American, but also Canadian political identity, because we put such a pressure on this idea of the middle class and everybody is in it and we want to see the middle class succeed. And it's interesting because I think this puts into perspective how we then view the lower class and why a lot of it, you know, especially when it comes to the capitalism, especially in contrast to socialism, capitalism puts such an emphasis on if you're poor, you're that way because you didn't work hard enough. And I think as we've seen, that theme is obviously well entrenched into this kind of theology. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of just um, in disability studies, there's the idea that the the Western kind of concept of disability um, is a result of capitalism. And so just this idea that it was only when there was the eight-hour workday that disability really, like, became a thing, I guess, and that, like, there would be people who, like, couldn't maintain that pattern, and so um, they were, in a sense, like, not not good enough for this uh, capitalistic society, and so that's where that's where the categories of disability kind of come in. Well, I'd be interested, though, because I know you've done a lot of work looking at kind of the theology of, like, disability and ableism, and so this is not something I'm super aware of, but I'd be curious to know, like, how much of it is like entrenched in actual biblical writings versus what we've kind of now interpreted. Because I think there's there's definitely talk in the Bible about, you know, people who were able to do certain things versus who wasn't and diseases and that kind of idea. There are certain interpretations of the Bible, particularly uh, ones that are more literal, that see uh, people with disabilities being like their disability was a result of uh, a sin or um, of, of their own sin or maybe their parents' sin, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so then in um, 
so being healed by Jesus was kind of like this restoration of of faith in a way, I guess. And and so there's there's a strong link between faith and sin and disability. And that kind of reminds me of this idea of health and wealth. And so this idea that like the rich are rich because because they're glorifying God through their work. In in the case of capitalism. Well, I feel like there's almost like two, um, there's almost two different views you can take, right? And it seems like one side of it is that, you know, if you believe in predestination, uh, then your disability, it would maybe be seen as God not favoring you, right? Or like a sin. Whereas if you kind of bring into the idea of Jesus healing them as like restoring their faith, well, then doesn't that kind of turn it on its head about, no, you actually can be redeemed, you know? And I think that maybe brings into more the evangelical side of things of like, you know, Jesus, like if you bring Jesus into your heart and if you accept Jesus, he'll forgive all your sins and you can actually change your fate. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, that's right. And that becomes problematic, though, because it it sees disability primarily as a problem to be solved, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's there's stories that I've heard of people, you know, being told that if they just pray more, you know, they'll be healed. And then when they're like, maybe they are healed, but if they're not healed, then that can be quite damaging to their faith. But then also, depending on the community that's been praying for them, maybe um, it might be inconvenient for them not to be healed because it kind of like it challenges their idea mm-hmm. of uh yeah of just like God and goodness and like like how prayer works I guess and and so it can be yeah quite damaging when it when that logic just doesn't follow through in the way that was expected mm-hmm. that almost um that makes me think of the kind of term I've been hearing a lot lately uh, especially from like the feminist movement is the idea of spiritual bypassing Uh, And I think that this is maybe more of like a traditional version of it, right? Um, And so just to give a definition of spiritual bypassing for listenership is the idea that people use it in kind of the manifesting communities, in, you know, the health and wellness community, uh, but also, you know, from maybe a bit of a Christian perspective as well, where uh, if you just manifest the right thing, if you pray for the right thing, then you'll heal yourself and everything will be fine. And it really diminishes the actual oppression and real world experiences of what's going on around people. And so I find that interesting that we can kind of turn that on its head and bring in the discussion of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement just expanding and becoming, you know, the most important issue in 2020. And we talk a lot about spiritual bypassing when it comes to that because it's been used often by especially white women who are really into manifestation and yoga. You know, mm-hmm. they they often tell, you know, their black friends that, well, you just need to, like, become at peace. Like, have you tried meditating? Have you tried yoga? You know, things like that. And so it's really interesting that we've separated this from Christianity, but it's still really ingrained in this kind of idea of you're your own fault, uh, if you're unhappy, if something's wrong in your life, it's your own fault. Full circle. <laughs> We're back to the American dream, right? I have a question. This might be a bit of a theological question, but if you are predestined for salvation, what does it matter if you work for success in the Calvinist faith? 
Yeah, that's that's where I struggle with too. I'm kind of there's like a very big disconnect because if you're predestined to go to heaven, then what what does the rest of it matter? If I knew I was predestined, I'd kind of just sit around all day, you know? Yeah. I wish I had an answer. (laughs) We both looked at Jacqueline. Yeah, our theology expert over there. (laughs) Uh, I can think of, like, particular Calvinists in my life that would uh, be sad that I uh, don't don't know the answer (laughs) in this moment. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, that's a really good question, and that's something um, that I I really struggle with understanding, too. Um, Maybe we should get a Calvinist on our podcast to talk yeah. about it. If you're a Calvinist and you're listening to us and would like to be on our podcast, send us an email, nearlynuminous at gmail.com. We'd <laughs> love to have you on so you can explain this to us. Okay, so, you know, I kind of brought up a little bit about the current political state. So obviously, uh, we're going to be releasing this episode around the same time that the next American election is. Um, and maybe it's worth just kind of talking about, you know, I brought up the idea of you know, the non-Christian environment and, like, how they view this kind of, like, the idea of spiritual bypassing, maybe, the idea of, you know, anti-American dream, maybe. I don't know how to transition into this. Anyway, all I wanted to try to transition to is maybe if you wanted to talk about some of the stuff you pulled up about, like, the 2020 election. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to sort of mention or I wanted to explore how my the emergence of like secularists non-religious peoples agnostics and atheists like these are rising trends uh how might that impact American politics and the 2020 election so an article from the spectator says that the latest statistics gathered by the Pew Research Center are shocking Between 2009 and 2019, the number of American adults describing themselves as Christians fell from 77% to 65%. Meanwhile, the number of atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular rose from 17 to 26%. They also noted that this is the first election in which the data indicate that American Christianity is imploding. So I just thought it was interesting to see that dynamic where... We can clearly see that religion still has a huge influence on American politics, but people are starting to ask the question, is that influence fading? Um, is this uh, is this to the detriment of American politics? I've seen quite a few um, articles online about why uh, religion leaving American politics is, you know, next to the apocalypse. What do you guys think? Well, I first want to problematize this idea that only, like, if only Christians, like, Christians will only support the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just something um, that I've seen in online communities, um, Christians that are that are Democratic. And so just this idea that, like, if you're truly Christian, you will support the Republican Party, I think, is quite problematic, just, uh, just as an assumption to make. Um, No, that's a good point to make. Yeah, I think it can go a little bit deeper, though, too, because, you know, like you were saying already, that people who kind of grew up in a Christian environment, which is a lot of the people that, you know, maybe even just support Republican Party, the the idea of the American dream and working hard and idleness is a sin is so ingrained in them that it has, it doesn't matter if they're Christian or not. They still have that, like, that's their whole identity. 
you know, especially the people who are so adamant about, you know, you know, the whole constitution was written on the basis of this ideology, of this, like, capitalist Protestant ethic ideology. And so even though the idea is, you know, we've removed religion from politics, haha, ha, uh, it's still so ingrained. The language itself, the I- ideology of it is so ingrained in this kind of Calvinist Puritan theology. And not just in the Republican Party either. I mean, obviously, in the Democratic Party, you can still see a lot of that pull yourself up by your own bootstraps Mm -hmm. mentality. Um, Yeah. Well, and I think that's why you see such a divide between someone like Bernie Sanders, who definitely doesn't believe that. Like, the way he discusses things, it's very, you know, social services, funding towards communities, uh, like, funded health care, etc. Whereas you have someone like Joe Biden who is obviously more supported by the Democratic Party, kind of spewing off more of the pull pull yourself up by your own bootstraps identity, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and it's just, when I think about that, I think part of me wonders, like, how can people believe that? You know, that whole idea of, like, um, you know, good things happening to good people. But just, just thinking about it, it makes sense. Like, we live in a world that's, like, crazy. Like, there's hurricanes that randomly happen like not randomly scientifically but you know seemingly (laughs) seemingly not randomly religiously either (laughs) it's the one time that religion and science get along (laughs) but it's like you know things kind of happen a little bit randomly in our lives um we can't control everything and isn't it nice to just have that world view and which says like if i like, if I do good things, I will be able to support myself and my family, and I will make a career for myself and gain this money. And, yeah, it makes sense why people would want to cling to that, because mm-hmm. once you realize that that's not true, and um, you become aware of, like, how people have been oppressed and the inequalities in this world, and, mm-hmm. like, it, it's kind of scary. To, well, and I think, to think too, about. you know, there's always this joke that uh, the people who are most up in arms about people who like the the upper classes being taxed are usually people in like the lower middle classes right and it's that idea of like hope you know Mm. and if you can believe that one day you'll be making over four hundred thousand dollars a year and you're going to be in the upper tax bracket you're going to support that ideology because you have hope that you can one day also achieve that you know regardless of if that's actually even possible because for most people it isn't you know most people are lucky, especially in the U.S., most people are lucky to, like, top out at a $60,000 a year salary, you know? Let's not even talk about teachers who make a $30,000 a year salary max. Mm. Yeah. I make more as a bartender. <laughs> to go back to that um, everybody-for-themselves mentality, though, it really reminds me of that, uh, the really common misunderstanding of the survival of the fittest um, phrase, which I think a lot of people have co-opted to say, um, if you can't survive on your own, if you can't build success for yourself, then, um, you're doomed to failure and you're kind of better off not being with the rest of us who can succeed. But that's just not the way natural selection works. Like, we're not all on our (laughs) own. We... Uh, we build social relationships for a reason because they are they're beneficial to us Um, and I think this this notion of extreme individualism is just so harmful to not only ourselves but like our fellow humans 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what I found really interesting as well was when Weber talks about how this is, you know, this idea of individualism is so in contrast to like the Catholic identity because you'd think especially like Luther would probably be like oh Catholicism is all bad (laughs) you know whereas this kind of idea of community and coming together and working together making sure everybody has what they needs uh is not something that I usually line up with what I view to be Catholic theology it's very true especially because you know as somebody I've been to Catholic churches before where you, you you feel like an outsider because you're not you know Catholic Right. So so it is interesting kind of seeing that like difference of perspective there. Interestingly, I I learned about the notion of vocation and uh, being able to like do God's work through your own work in Catholic school, which, um, as we were talking about before, is more of like a Protestant Calvinist idea. Well, like, yeah, uh, Protestant ideas have a, have eventually like influenced some Catholic theologies yeah. over time. Well, like I think the Vatican too is yeah. kind of like the epicenter of all of that. I'm sure you can probably find a lot of the similarities coming forward because that was what in the 60s. Mm. I don't know enough about Vatican II to start like I know like <laughs> such either. like I know very 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 little. Yeah. I'd have to do like a lot more research to start like spewing off stuff about Vatican II. So it's interesting how we've moved from. Uh, kind of the whole constitution and identity of America being founded on this very Protestant theology to, you know, we think we've come so far, you know, we've changed so much, religion and politics are separate. But something that I found really interesting is that almost every single president has been Protestant. So Kennedy was the first Catholic uh, president. Then we've got you know, Mitt Romney ran for the presidency but didn't win, uh, and he was a very, very outspoken Mormon. And I think it's really interesting how, you know, subconsciously we're maybe still associating the idea of capitalism and economic prosperity to this very, you know, specific religious identity. Well, I know that the Republican nominees are um, are Protestant. From what I can tell from a quick Google search, uh, Joe Biden is Catholic and Kamala Harris. Um, I couldn't really find a lot on her, but what Wikipedia told me was that she was influenced by the black church and Hindu mythology growing up. So that's quite a departure from strict Protestantism that um, we usually see in the presidential nominees. I mean, also a non-white woman is a strict uh, departure from the presidential nominees. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, but it seems Donald Trump, uh, you know, states that he's Presbyterian, which is really interesting and potentially a political move. Uh, And same with, I think you noticed that um, Mike Pence used to be Catholic. Yeah. But switched over to Protestantism, so he became an evangelical. Which, again, you, you kind of wonder, is this an intentional political move? You know, if they're very well aware that, you know, typically... Protestants end up winning the presidency if that's a very intentional thing. But yeah, I think it's also very interesting because Mike Pence is so outspoken about his religious beliefs, uh, especially when it comes to like the LGBTQ community.
So something that I'm thinking about on this topic of disability and capitalism, um, it reminds me of a book by Dr. Jasbir Puar, who is a professor of women's and gender studies at uh, Rutgers University in the States. And she wrote a book, uh, The Right to Name, Debility, Capacity, Disability, which which talks about how... Um, like she focuses a lot on disability, specifically disabilities that are injuries. And so just the idea that that sort of disability often is um, like specifically targets, you know, people of color, people who are put in more dangerous situations in their workplaces, um, don't have as much protection, like workplace protection that way. Um, maybe disability comes from like an injury in war, that sort of thing. And so um, that very often it's uh, people who are maybe lower income, already like racialized, who um, get injured and and get this sort of disability and so it, it just makes me think about how how a lot of these things um, are quite cyclical so a lot of these people are already oppressed and then something happens and then um, they're oppressed even more because they can't work the same way that they used to because now they have this disability and it just kind of um, to me just really demonstrates the f- the flawedness of capitalism in that with this idea that oh like everybody can like get this like really high paying job whatever everybody should be able to work these certain hours when actually just like due to systemic racism and just oppression like these these things don't necessarily like they they can't happen unless we um, fix the problem and so that's largely what uh poor is is looking at um in there in in that book i have some criticism of that book because um just from a disability standpoint she doesn't look at um like disabilities uh, that are present from birth, for example. So there are like some holes in her argument in that way, but specifically with like injuries, um, yeah, like that, that is something that like for me is quite problematic with the nature of capitalism and the mm-hmm. way that people experience oppression. Well, and I bodies. think that also comes down to the fact that we, we place a dollar sign on everybody's head, right? And when there is, you know, a strike against you, that dollar sign goes down. And so it's amazing as well that we get into the fact that, you know, the idea of like pick you up by your bootstraps, like you work hard and you you figure it out. There's also the other side of that where, you know, there's this kind of idea of helping your own kin. Um, and so, you know, you'll still help the people that you see value in. So if you see if they will help you in some way, their, their dollar sign goes up. If they are able to work for you, their dollar sign goes up. So, you know, when you kind of bring into the discussion of disability onto that, uh, you could see almost like if it was my sibling, obviously I would do more to help them because I saw that inherent value in them. But when it's disassociated from you, you don't see that value as much, right? Yeah, if you're not one of their own or you're not part of the in-group or can in some way benefit them, then... Um, why help them at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's an argument that ableism, uh, ableism being the discrimination in favor of able-bodied people, ableism is largely uh, rooted in white supremacy and just whiteness, and very often, um, even in the disability movement, the main voices would be uh, uh, white people with disabilities. And so a lot of the way that um, white able-bodied people kind of interact with disability is when one of their fellow white people becomes disabled and that's kind of like their first like realization that disability is kind of a thing that they should maybe care about 
Um, and so that's also problematic, though, too, because I forget where I was reading this, but just I'm um, talking about how even when like a white person is sick, there's a certain amount of time, you know, that like maybe a community will like bring casseroles and that sort of thing, but then eventually it kind of like like fades away in importance. There still is this sort of uh, I don't want to say like dollar sign necessary necessarily in this case, but this sort of like economic system of care that is sort of assumed. And so like even when it's someone within your own circle, it can be hard it it can be hard to uh support someone. Um yeah. And then so if you look at like people that are maybe outside of your circle, um people with a different background than you, then yeah, that's kind of the same thing as what you're talking about with like it it's harder for like anyone to care about people that they don't know mm -hmm. and especially when like your political ideology is more is more focused on um the in-group that is directly around you then that becomes even more difficult so that reminds me of in Weber's book he actually brings up the character in the pilgrim's progress and it's been quite a while since I've interacted with either Weber's book directly or the pilgrim's progress but basically it's the idea of the one character who leaves behind all like his whole family uh, and, you know, doesn't necessarily care because he's going to go visit, like, kind of the celestial place, right? Um, so it's it's kind of brings up that idea of this, like, that Protestant ethic and bringing back to kind of that theme of loneliness and how people are so individualized. And I think it's interesting because Weber was presenting this as almost like they don't even care about their own kin. Like, they don't care about their own people because they're so worried about their own salvation. And they know that they can't save others, so why should they bother trying, right? So I think it's interesting that, you know, there has been at least a little bit of a shift there because, again, like, people people do care about their own kin, right? For the most part. I mean, that's a very broad statement, obviously. You can't categorize people like that because I'm sure there are plenty of families that you know, kick people to the curb over addiction and disability and sexuality, you know, et cetera, right? If you can't or won't, for whatever reason, work for your salvation or, you know, work for money, or they could be the same thing in this case, <laughs> um, then you might be seen as uh, lazy or worthless if we're talking about that dollar sign on your head and this isn't just like an American thing I'm this is a Canadian thing too uh, and I'm sure it exists elsewhere in the world I know I feel that pressure when uh when I think about whether I should work more during the week just because I do have an extra hour or two every night maybe I should work for more money even if it would be detrimental to my health physically or mentally. Um, and I think that a lot of people do go through with that. They work and work and work and work. And even though they're working to, you know, figuratively or literally raise their spirit, um, it ends up crushing their spirit. Mm -hmm. Or just... Um... I know of people who who wear that sort of thing as a badge, like oh, like when I was when I was working my way through university, I worked like mm. this much, and and yeah, like there's a certain extent of like well, like like they may have needed to do that actually, mm -hmm. but the idea of like wearing that as some sort of badge of mm -hmm. honor like and cries the struggle, yeah, yeah. Like proud just, to be a workaholic, yeah, this like this honor of workaholic 
ism. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if that's a word. Well, and it's even like the the pressure of, you know, and I see this a lot more, especially in the like female community that like you need to have a side hustle, you mm. know, like you work during the week and then have another job on the weekend so that you can like work and make sure that you like get the success you need because like you're a strong independent woman and in order to show that you need to like have your day job but then also be like a photographer on the side right you know so that that rhetoric still like expands into again like not just the you know calvinist christian community expands into the white women who love yoga community you know I need to find a better... I keep calling it the white women who love yoga community, and I feel like there's a better term for it. Our listeners who are white women who love yoga are feeling very oppressed by you, Steph. I'm sorry. I'm also a white woman who loves yoga. Yeah, I'm very interested to see kind of how this election plays out uh, because I think that we're obviously at a huge kind of divide as, as Rachel was outlining, the, the, the Christian population is diminished, but obviously we've seen that these kind of ideals that were put forward by the Protestant and like Calvinist identity at the beginning of America are still so ingrained and just everybody, even, you know, the far left's ideology and identity you still see elements of it, right? So I'm very interested to kind of see how this election will pan out. And obviously, you know, we've got two candidates that just represent those kind of ideals, granted in their different ways. Um, I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump and Joe Biden have the exact same ideals, because they definitely do not. But I think as we've seen here, you know, there's so much of it that's just so ingrained in just the whole system in the U.S., um... So, so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, if we'll ever have somebody as far away from it as Bernie Sanders being in charge or even like AOC, um, but you know. So I feel like we uh, could probably sit and talk about politics, American politics, religion and politics for days, um, but we might have to leave the rest of that for a different episode. So hopefully we've uh, given some sort of information about, you know, where some of these political identities and ideologies come from uh, and that they don't just kind of exist in a vacuum. They're a long lineage of history. And, you know, I think it's really important that we keep this kind of stuff in mind when we're voting, you know. Uh, the the three hosts here on the podcast are Canadian. Um, I'm assuming most of our listenership is Canadian currently, uh, so maybe some of this isn't as relevant. Um, but I think that it, it is important to understand the history and the background of all of the values that kind of make up our worldview. You know, and I think that's become even more prominent this year, where we've started to learn about how these historical systems of oppression are long-standing and they exist with uh, very definitive purposes so yeah make sure to stay educated and uh if you can vote please vote thanks for listening to this week's episode of nearly numinous you can subscribe on all of your favorite podcasting apps including spotify Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Just search for Nearly Numinous. You can also find us on social media under the same name. Have a topic you'd like us to talk about? Would you like to be a guest on a future episode? 
reach out to us at nearlynuminous@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode.